Well, self-sufficiency. Self-sufficiency is something that we often admire in our culture. There's a little bit of the American can-do spirit when we think of self-sufficiency and that idea, right? Think of self-made men, men or men who can handle themselves with little assistance. We respect that. Uh, Movies with men who are doing things, saving the world single-handedly. They somehow are able to get themselves out of every circumstance with little more than their own skills and ability. It's, of course, some bad aim on the part of their enemies and other things help. But it, the point of the story often is that they're self-sufficient. And, and it's fun to watch. It's fun to, to dream about what it would be like to have those skills. We have reality TV shows where self-sufficiency is actually tested test someone's ability to survive dropped off in the middle of nowhere, uh, all based on their own skills. One of the lies of feminism is that women, ultimately, the highest ideal is for a woman to be self-sufficient. The only thing a woman needs from her father or husband is for them to stay out of her way. Self-sufficiency. It's a lie there. You're to pursue that. There are aspects of this that, not the lie of feminism, but there are aspects of self-sufficiency that are admirable, of course, skill and the ability for someone to accomplish something or a task or having abilities that have been honed over time. But ultimately, it's not true self-sufficiency. If you drill down far enough, even the most independent men and women are utterly dependent. The world's best, most independent survivalist is dependent on resources that he or she has ultimately no power to create, right? Water, food, sun, rain, air, right? At the end of the day, the most self-sufficient, independent human being is utterly dependent. And we we think of that and this notion of self-sufficiency as we prepare to apply that to our look at God and his attributes. And we're reminded when we consider it that way of the creature-creator distinction. And that's one of the takeaways, as we'll see from our look at God's independence or his self-existence. Spurgeon said this, this is quoted now famously in J.I. Packer's Knowing God. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. And he says this, no subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. As we turn our attention to attributes of greatness, that ultimately is one of the best takeaways for our hearts, to be humbled by a look at God's greatness. Today, we're going to turn our attention to God's independence, to his self-existence. And when we do that, we're going to be reminded how different he is from us. And that's on purpose, so that our hearts will exclaim truly, right? No one is like the Lord. We ask the question of Scripture, who is like him? We want our hearts to say that, to know that that no one is like the Lord, And that will be the takeaway for many of our 
attributes of greatness in our studies, and of course of his goodness because he's great and transcendent in his goodness. But in particular, as we look at these attributes of greatness, we will be reminded regularly just how different God is from us so that we're humbled, as Spurgeon said, so that our pride is drowned in a look at God. Not only are we dependent, just as we set up a reminder here for our existence, of course, as we'll see, we're also de- we have dependence upon dependence upon dependence. We're dependent upon God to have knowledge of God. And I just want to read Matthew eleven twenty five through 27, just to remind us as we set ourselves for the purpose of studying his attributes and we consider things that sometimes we wrongly want to relegate to intellectual curiosity, or on the flip side, we think, well, these things just puff up. I want to be reminded where all of our knowledge of God ultimately comes from and our dependence for a true knowledge of him, and that is through our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew eleven twenty five. at that time, Jesus said, I praise you, fathers, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Well, which things? Well, read up above and see those things. Reality is of him, who he is, his work of salvation, his mission, what he came to do. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. So the worldly wise, the worldly intelligent aren't actually able to apprehend the significant realities of the son, who he was, what he came to do. Then he says this, all things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father, nor does anyone know the father except the son and anyone to whom the son wills to reveal him. And so as we set our mind to study, of course, the attributes of the Godhead, not simply the Father, as Adam clarified last week. We want to be reminded, though, that we're dependent even on the Lord for our ability to have knowledge of him. And we want to study our attributes as an exercise of devoted discipleship, not simply an intellectual pursuit. A couple of reminders. Adam so helpfully introduced how we're going to think about the attributes last week. I've given you a summary of those things that he pointed out for us that will govern our study in your handout. Remember, God is not the sum of his attributes. He's not a little bit of this plus a little bit of this plus a little bit of that. The attributes aren't external to him. They're they're descriptions of his very essence. They're who he is. We said no attribute is more essential than any other attribute. And then importantly, we acknowledge that sometimes in Scripture, God emphasizes certain attributes over others, but not to say that they're more essential to his being. It's just what he's chosen in his self-disclosure to emphasize. We talked about how we're going to categorize our study of the attributes, attributes of greatness and attributes of goodness, which Adam mentioned Dr. George Zimmick. We see that in Millard Erickson's Christian Theology, some other places just as a way of helping us as best we can frame how we look at the attributes of God. And this is not a perfect organization, but I think it's helpful. Attributes of greatness, as Adam said, emphasize the vast extent of God's nature in ways that are entirely unlike us. That's what we'll see today. When we talk about this attribute of greatness and we recognize how unlike God we are in this, that's on purpose. And then attributes of goodness emphasize his perfection and how he deals with us. More on that side. Of course, again, he's great and infinite in that. And in many ways, he's unlike us. Even there, 
But there is a distinction, and we'll talk about that as we come to these various attributes. How we're going to frame our lessons as we work through this series is, is as we take an attribute, we're going to define it, we're going to prove it, and we're going to apply it. It's pretty straightforward. That's the way your outline that you have in your handout is, and that's what we'll endeavor to do each week as we study these. We're going to take a particular attribute or maybe a series or a grouping of attributes. We want to define it or them, define them, we want to prove them, not necessarily an apologetic sort of a way, but just to show you from Scripture why these are legitimate labels or categories to describe God. And then we, again, we want to apply it. This isn't simply a study for study's sake, right? We want to know God more for worship, for devotion, for our growth and holiness. So let's define God's independence or self-existence. The Westminster Confession of Faith, a mid-17th century um, statement of theology. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness, and then here's the important, in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures, which he hath made. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. That sounds familiar at the end. It sounds like Romans 11. We'll see. So what do we mean, though, when we say that God is independent or self-existent? Probably unsurprising to you, we mean that nothing has caused him to exist. Nothing sustains his existence. God simply is. In that sense, he's independent. He doesn't stand connected to something as a source of life because he is life in and of itself. He has that within himself. He simply is. Terry Johnson, helpfully in his book, The Identity and Attributes of God, says God is what he is and what he always has been, depending on nothing, needing nothing, and answering to no one. Helpful, short, straightforward articulation of this. God's independence, his self-existence. Sometimes you may see this called his aseity, God's aseity, or, or it's an attribute. And aseity is not really that helpful. It has a history and different meanings and can indicate more something like that God is the cause of his own existence. And that has, that's actually not helpful at all. And so we're avoiding that terminology because we're not going to dive into God being the cause of his own existence or something like that. He, he just is. He is self-existent. So aseity is not the most helpful term, but it does have some historical precedent when you're talking about independence or God's self-existence. But self-existence and independence are just fine on their own to help us describe quite simply that God is who he is. Scripture says nothing about God causing his own existence. What is in Scripture is the fact that God exists, he simply is, and that he's independent of anything that would be a source for him. So a corollary to God being independent or self-existent is that he's self-sufficient. That is, we would say God possesses everything that makes him who he is. Within himself, intrinsically, he didn't obtain something and add it to himself. Within himself, in his very essence, in his nature, every quality and infinite measure that he has as God is his, and he possesses it. He's self-sufficient. So think of all of his perfections, all of his qualities, anything essential to his being. Nothing has been added to him. Nothing has come in from the outside. He needs nothing to derive who he is. 
He's underived. He is utterly self-sufficient. As we talk about that, we think like we don't talk about one another that way, right? And with good reason. With good reason. This is, these are attributes of God, his greatness, what distinguish him from everything. And as we look at scripture, we'll see that even though as we say, well, we're, we're conceiving of God's self-existence and his self-sufficiency and his independence, and those sound like interesting categories we don't think of often, the scriptures in God's self-disclosure, he articulates realities that, that he wants us to see this about himself. He wants us to see that he's independent, that he doesn't need anything to sustain him. In fact, that he is the source of all that needs to be sustained. So with those brief definitions, let's look at Scripture. If you look at the back side of your handout there on the prove it side, I want to look at the way that Scripture portrays this. One thing you'll notice as we work through these attributes of greatness is you may see some of the same Bible verses on across multiple weeks. And that's because one psalm may say many things about God, and we're observing one aspect of that that then we can dwell on and think of that reflects something of God's nature and attributes. And, but it may and likely communicates more than just the one thing we're focusing on. So if you see like Psalm 50 on here like every week or Psalm 90 or all the, then don't be surprised. That's not an accident. It's not like, do these guys talk? Do they know they're pointing at the same psalm every week? Yes, we know. Uh, that's because God, again, hasn't given us his word as a systematic theology. There's no index and reference in the back of your Bible to go look where, which passages teach about God's you know, self-sufficiency, and they're all distinct, and they're entries. You know, that's not how God revealed himself in his word. And so the passages where he's articulating the, his transcendence or the utter distinction of his character from creation, we're going to see a lot of these attributes in those contexts. So it's not a mistake. All right, first, and again, most apparent to us, God existed before the world. Everything we know, we know as creatures, God existed before that. Say, does his word set that forth? Yes, it does. And that's an important reality about God that he wants us to know. He's even worshiped for it. Of course, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God. We have that articulated about the Savior and early in John, in John chapter 1, and then again in John 17 when he's praying, he talks about being with the Father from before the foundation of the world. You can look at those. Psalm 90, in its context, is using this reality to talk about God's unchanging nature and his faithfulness, but says that he is. He's the one who existed before the things that he made exist. Look at Revelation 1. Verse 8, I'm the Alpha, the beginning, and the Omega, the end, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. The verses I've given you in these verses all point out as you look, and we're going to see uh, other verses that actually highlight this in creation as well, that God existed already before the world. Nothing made him. He's dependent on nothing. It doesn't talk about where his existence was sourced because he just is. He always has been. And that's important. We're to, we're to wonder at that, to be struck by that, to recognize the smallness of us as creatures when we just hear, there is no beginning to God. He just is. 
We only, it's hard to even conceive because we have a beginning, we have an origin, we think about things starting and beginning, even creation. God was before that. That's essential to who he is as God. We also see that God's life is in and of himself. It is in and of himself. This is reflected a little bit in Exodus 3.14 when he reveals himself to Moses, right? In the burning bush. He says, I am. Who sent me? Who do I tell him sent me? I am. And in that is reflected that he is creator and sustainer, right? He is. He, he as he told Moses, I am. We see this also identified in John in a couple places. So look at the Gospel of John, where this articulation is very given very in a very straightforward fashion. John chapter one. Of course, referenced earlier the the very beginning, which talks about the word. And the word being with God, in the beginning with God. Verse 4, in him was life. In him was life. What a statement. And the life was the light of men. Later in John 5, flip over to John 5, now in his ministry, Jesus himself declares this reality. John 5, 26, for just as the father has life in himself, even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself. God's life is in and of himself. It's distinct from the life of all other living things. Because God possesses life, because he is life, then he is the fountain of life. And we're gonna look at John 5 again in just a little bit and talk more about why Jesus said that about himself and about the Father in that context. But look at point C, God is the fountain of life. These kind of all, of course, work together. God is the fountain of life. That's declared very straightforwardly in Psalm 36. Psalm 36. Psalm 36, verse 9, for with you, the psalmist declares, is the fountain of life. Now, we look at that and make an observation about God's attributes and it correlate that with other passages that are teaching about the uniqueness of God's life. And we see that he's a fountain of life. But just consider the context briefly for Psalm 36, right? In contrast to the wicked... Verse 5, the psalmist begins exclaiming realities about the Lord. Your loving kindness extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Your righteousness is like the mountains, O God. And he goes on. O continue, he prays after saying this, your loving kindness to those who know you. In the midst of this psalm of devotion and this prayer for the Lord to continue to give freely to the psalmist of his loving kindness and to continue in his faithfulness, He's proclaiming this, that the Lord is the fountain of life. 
Now, as the fountain of life then and as possessing life, that's why John, in, in back in John 1, hopefully you have the spines of your Bible nice and loose. We're back in John 1. We're now in John 1, 3. We see God as the, as the source, as the fountain, verse 3. And of course, God the Son, all things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So as the fountain of life, as the source of life, he can bring other things into existence. And that's exactly what happened, John says. And God the Son, of course, bears that distinction, which is what he's teaching in John 1.1. Now, go back to John 5. And let's look closer at the context. Beginning in verse 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but is passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Now verse 26, that, the, the basis, the grounding of this creative power, the, the, really the word of Christ will give life. So Jesus says in verse 26, for just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27, and he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did the good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Resurrection power can only come from one who is the fountain of life. Jesus stakes the his claim on the fact that the Father has life in and of himself and granted that to the Son, they share in this being the fountain of life as a part of the essential being of who they are as God, than the Godhead. And he talks about that being the grounding or the basis for his claim, that he will speak forth and call the dead to life in the resurrection. It's astounding. Calvin commenting on this says, he shows whence his voice derives such efficacy. That is, Jesus shows where the efficacy of his calling the dead to life comes from, namely that he is the fountain of life and by his voice pours it out on men. For life would not flow to us from his mouth if he had not in himself the cause and source of it. God is said to have life in himself not only because he alone lives by his own inherent power, but because containing in himself the fullness of life, he communicates life to all things. And Jesus points at the reality of that being essential to who God is when he describes the fact that one day he will call the dead to to live in the resurrection. Look also at Revelation chapter 4. Revelation chapter 4. The worship of the 
elders around the throne in John's vision in verse 11. They say, worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. Say, why? Why this worship? For you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Sometimes we're very concerned about the doctrine of creation, particularly in our day and age for apologetical reasons. We want to argue about creation because we want to uphold the veracity of Scripture, and there's good in that. We want to, you know, talk about geological formations and things to show that, that God's Word, uh, you know, coheres with what we can observe in the world without a worldview that's anti-God. But in Scripture, the point of creation and pointing at God as creator is so that we think about Him. The worship here is not... God created so that we have an apologetic against evolutionists. The, the point here is to think about who it is that we're giving worship to. The fact that, that God is the creator, that he's the source of life, and that as the source of life brought into life everything, that's why he's to be given worship. He's worthy of honor and power and glory. Why? Simply because he's the creator. The doctrine of creation is very important for us because of what it says about God. And we need to remember that. There's, look, there's a place for understanding the dynamics and being equipped to defend the faith, but God's word wasn't written to us. Genesis 1 wasn't written as an apologetic for creation against modern science. I think we know that, but we need to be reminded of that. Revelation 4.11 is given to us so that we worship the creator. God is worthy as a creator. Press in and read Genesis 1 so that you're in awe of the fact that God made all that you see. And John 1, so that we're reminded that the Son called into existence everything that exists. And that apart from him, nothing exists. And we should worship. And I'm astounded that the vision of Revelation, of all the things you think about, that they could be ascribing glory and honor and worth and power and might to God for its creation. In the book at the end, they're worshiping God for what we often assume is at the beginning, right? Right? And they're, they're worshiping him for being the creator. And we should do the same when we think about creation. It's not simply to prove the age of mountains or deep canyons or fossils. We read about creation, right, so that we can behold the transcendent majesty of God. And that's important. God is the fountain of life. It reminds us how utterly different he is from us. He is independent. We are dependent. He has life. We required him to have ours, right? You see the difference, and we could go on, so on and so forth, throughout his creation. Lastly, we see God is self-sufficient in the sense that this, he does not depend on anything for anything. He does not depend on anything for anything. And the scriptures say this in some, some really some awe-inspiring ways. And in contexts that are particularly poignant as he's teaching his people how he wants them to respond to him. Psalm 50. Psalm 50. We looked at this last week. We've looked at this often. 
Verse 21, of course, you thought that I was just like you and being a crucial mistake. Before he gets there, listen to what he says. Psalm 50, verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings are continually before me. He says, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. Now listen, verse 15, call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. As it concerns God's self-sufficiency, his independence, his self-existence, this psalm helps us see, look, God needs nothing from us. The sacrifices of the Old Testament system weren't meant to, to, to feed him, right? They, they weren't meant because he needed them in order to derive some sort of energy, significance, or that he was in a particular state and then they brought their sacrifices and that changed his condition. Of course not. But that was how the pagan gods were that were around Israel. But God doesn't, doesn't need those things, and he makes that clear. He needs nothing from them. He owns everything. Right? If he owns all the cattle and everything that is, then certainly he didn't command a sacrifice because he needs a goat back. That's kind of the point. But he says all this to correct them and to turn their attention toward him. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I shall rescue you and you will honor me. Well, what does that have to do with his self-existence? Because he doesn't need anything from them. He's powerful and can give them what they need. And so this psalm turns the perspective from, I, I don't need anything from you. Right? I'm self-sufficient. I'm, I'm independent of those things. And actually that equips me uniquely amongst all the lower G gods in the world to do what you need me to do. Don't bring sacrifices because you think I need them. Instead, call to me in the day of trouble because you need me. You see the distinction, right? And talk about applicability, right? We need God. He doesn't need us. We depend upon him. He doesn't depend upon us. And that is fleshed out in our lives of devotion and discipleship when we Go to him with our needs, and we'll see that just a little bit later. Look at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40, one of the more famous portions of Scripture that just declares God's transcendence, His majesty. It's an amazing text. But I want you to, 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 to see how contrasting Himself with idols, how, how God refers to what we're calling His independence or His, his self-existence, His self-sufficiency, and how He uses that to contrast Himself with the idols that were and the idolatry that was plaguing His people. And so when he sets forth his, these grand statements of who he is, he's doing that in response and in contrast with 
the deaf and dumb idols that mankind can hold in their hand and that they're using, and he's, and he's looking at them, and he's saying, do you not, like, not know? Consider me, right? Estimate me rightly, and then trust me. Depend on me. Right? That's the kind of the, a very surface-level statement of the context for much of Isaiah. Their trust and dependence was being placed in everything except God. And so when he articulates who he is and we get these wonderful statements of his independence or self-existence, he's doing that to engender their faith, to call them to trust him. Isaiah 40, verse 13, he says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or has his counsel or has informed him? God needs no knowledge. God needs no counselors. With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding and who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding, right? These are rhetorical questions to indicate God has all those things and needs them from no one. So we get this independence, this self-existence. Verse 19, oh, of course, verse 18, the wonderful question, to whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? Which should be our heart's takeaway and a wonderful question to constantly consider as we look at the attributes. Listen to how he talks about these idols and think about it in the context of our lesson today, independence, self-existence. As for the idol, a craftsman casts it. So first of all, an idol is made. <laughs> God needs nothing. An idol is dependent on the idol maker for its existence. A goldsmith plates it with gold. A silversmith smith fashions it chains of silver. He who is too impoverished for such an offering, so maybe can't afford a gold one or a silver one, he selects a tree that does not rot, and he seeks out for himself a skillful craftsman to prepare an, an idol that will not totter. You, you hear what's going on? So the one who doesn't need knowledge doesn't need anything. Right now he's contrasting himself with idols who are dependent upon mankind for their own existence. They're made of the materials that God himself spoke into existence. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundation of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He goes on to declare his utter distinction from these idols that are, that are made. Down in verse 28, do you not know? Have you not heard the everlasting Lord the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't become weary or tired. He doesn't need rest in that sense. He doesn't need anything. Then you come to chapter 44 and you look at verses 9 through 20. Also, he's again contrasting who he is and, how, and, and the, the, <laughs> the irony of people making idols to worship and they're having to be made, and the God who needs nothing, who is independent, who's self-existent, who's self-sufficient, is saying, trust me, not these things you're making. And it, it, you should read it in great detail, because you think of Isaiah's, God's argumentation, actually, through the prophet Isaiah. I mean, just exposing this, the stupidity of what was happening in idolatry. He doesn't simply say, idols are bad, I'm the creator, worship me instead. He exposes the stupidity of their idolatry at the most basic level and how distinct they are from him as being self-existent and independent. So he details how man shapes these idols and how they're doing this all for themselves. But then he says, verse 15, these idols, it becomes something for a man to burn. And so he takes one of the idols and he warms himself and then he uses it to make fire to, to bake bread. 
And he uses that same thing to make a god and worship it. Half of it he burns in the fire, verse 16. Over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. It's like, do you see the ridiculousness? The thing you're worshiping, you're throwing in the fire to fuel the fire. And they say they don't understand. And of course, that's the tragedy. They don't understand. But this, then go back and compare that with Isaiah 40, verse 28. Where again, they have to make and fashion idols. They can rot. God says, do you not know, right? I'm the one who doesn't grow weary. I'm the one with indiscrutable understanding. And then that's where verse 29 comes. He's the one, this God, this independent, self-existent, self-sufficient God, he is then able to give strength to the weary. He's the one who produces and gives to those who are in need what they need. And he's able to do so. He's not dependent on another in any way, shape, or form. But he's able then to give. And so all of those verses, they, they weren't there in our Bibles just for the sake of being there to teach us something about God that doesn't have any bearing on day-to-day life as his children. He sets these things forth so that we'll respond with faith, with confidence, with trust. You can look yourself at Acts 17.25, a clear articulation that God doesn't need anything. His worship is not because he needs something that he served by human hands with need. Paul makes that clear in contrast to the pagan gods that were around that he saw. So let's apply this briefly. Again, just consider, and I know we're going quickly, but John 5 and Isaiah 40 in their contexts, right? These statements of God's existence, his self-sufficiency, statements of God's transcendence aren't just there for their own sake. They're in context where they're being taught something that we need to know, that we need to trust, that we need to have confidence in, that are built on that reality. Studying God's greatness should provoke our confidence and our trust in him. Right? Read Isaiah 40. I think I should have confidence and trust in that God. What a God. What a glorious God that we serve. How could I not trust him? And then pair that with 1 Peter 5 who says, humble yourselves before Almighty God and cast your cares upon him, your anxieties, because he cares for you. The God of Isaiah 40, the God who stands independent, who doesn't need anything from us, though has freely chosen to graciously love and care for us. And when you think about who he is in and of himself and all that he has, and that he has said he cares for us, and then we can bring our anxieties to him, right? Our, when you study theology, when you study his existence, his attributes, his, his independence, it should engender confidence and trust. Secondly, I would say it's good for our souls to consider the differences between God and us. I wouldn't ask, what, what, what are we compared to you that you would think anything of us? That's a good question. Psalm 8. Lord, what is man that you would so wonderfully and graciously give us all this stuff to do for his purposes? And when we consider who he is, the works of his hands, the fact that he doesn't need us for anything, it's good to be humbled before him and to ask, what, 
What are, what are we? That's good for our souls. And then we need to be reminded that because God has no need, because he's never inadequate or lacking in any way, he, he's never dependent on anything in any way for any reason, that how we worship, how we serve, how we view our service, how we view our worship, how we view our giftings for his church, how we view the mission that we're to carry out as the church, all of these things have to be rightly understood in the framework of God doesn't need us. He has chosen to use us. He has given us tasks to do. He has created good works beforehand that we are to walk in. But the, the missionary appeal that God needs us to go to carry out his purpose, that he requires it, that he's somehow helpless apart from our engagement, is mistaken, right? There is a need to go. There is a need to serve. There is a need for good stewardship. But it's not because God has some lack that he's dependent upon us to provide. Right? He's called us to worship him. He already has glory and honor. We ascribe it to him. When we say in our mission statement, we, we exist to magnify God. We're not adding anything to God. We're just recognizing what's there right? and been being a megaphone for that through our lives. But that's because he's chosen to use us for that. He's given us the privilege of that. He doesn't need anything from us. So the way that we serve, the way that we are called to be stewards of the resources he's given, that we're already his anyway, so we're just giving back. The way that we think about engaging in his mission, the mission of the church, all of those things, we do so recognizing that our works are for him, that they're to him, they're because he's freely chosen to order his world that way, and he's graciously called us to do that work for him, but he doesn't need it. He doesn't need us. He's not dependent on us for anything. And that's very good. If he was, he wouldn't be God. And the statements of Isaiah 40 wouldn't hold true, right? And so God's independence, his self-existence, his self-sufficiency should cause us to, to place our trust and confidence in him and to wonder in worship at his transcendence. Let's pray. Father, what can we say besides who is like you? Our, our minds, are we struggle, of course, to comprehend who you are. We know that we can't fully comprehend all that you are, but you've been pleased to reveal these wonderful truths about yourself so that our confidence in you will be bolstered, so that our devotion to you will be increased, so that our love for you will increase, that we will worship you rightly and ascribe to you the honor and glory that you're due. Help us to process these things, not simply as an intellectual exercise, but to appropriate them in our lives as your children. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for the work of your son in doing that so that we may know you rightly and consider these things and live in light of them. It's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.